0: Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now. Here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history this week. On the agenda, gonna be having a chat about the Mechanical Turk, which, uh, which actually. Was a chess-playing machine that uh, that mystified and astonished people in the late 18th century, early 19th century. Uh, the Turk, as it became uh, as it became known, we call, it was called the Turk. Uh, it was built by an inventor named Wolfgang von Kempelen, and it was toured around Europe and later across the Atlantic into into North America, where it was challenged by people such as as Benjamin Franklin and Napoleon Bonaparte. And I have to say, it won the vast majority of games that it played too, which obviously only added to the excitement and the mystery behind this amazing invention. It's an absolutely incredible story. I mean, these days, you know, we got we got we've got, got computer powered chess engines like Stockfish and Alpha Zero, and of course, you've heard of the famous Deep Blue, the first chess engine to ever beat a world champion. But uh, you know, but 250 years ago, they didn't have all the all the wondrous technological marvels that we have today. You know, smartphones, laptops, the slap chop, all these things. And so the Turk, it really was, it was a marvel of the age that stupefied its audiences. And for almost 100 years, even after the death of its creator, the Turk travelled the world being exhibited for all to see, a chess-playing robot at a point in human history where, you know, things like plywood and and the sewing machine were were considered exciting new ideas. Now, how it worked was a very closely guarded secret and attracted scores of inventors and scientists and investigators who were all hell-bent on discovering uh, the, uh, you know, and understanding the machine's inner workings, how this, uh, this machine was, was able to play chess so well. Uh, people were amazed. They were amazed by the machine's construction, its appearance, and, uh, and, and again, most of all, its skill. It dispatched some of the best players on Earth and, and solved classic chess puzzles like the Knights tour. And on top of all of, on top of, all of this, its owners had uh, had all sorts of adventures as they toured the world with this technological marvel, as you'll discover. Special thanks this week go to my good mate Dennis Stranjak for uh, for suggesting the Turk as a topic. And uh, I have to say this as well, it's not the only thing we're thanking Dennis for this week, as we'll come to a little bit later on. But for now, let's get to it, have a chat about the Mechanical Turk, and, we're, and let's see if we can unveil its mysteries and its secrets here. We're going all the way back, all the way back to 1770, or perhaps just a little bit before this. Uh, to Schönbrunn Palace in Vienna, in Austria. Very beautiful palace there. It's still there today. And uh, and there, our mate Wolfgang von Kempelen, he was present at the court of Empress Maria Theresa when a bloke named Francois Pelletier put on a bit of a magic show at the at the imperial court there. Now, I wasn't able to find out what this bloke Pelletier did, uh, you know, whether it was a sort of the classic rabbit out of the hat or sawing a lady in half or whatever. But I'll tell you what, I went down a storm. I went down an absolute storm. But Kempelen... However, he decides that he wants to top this French magician and his and uh, his tricks. Oh, sorry, illusions, Michael, and uh, and so he he went away determined to put together something even more impressive. Now, Kemperland himself he had a lot going for him. He'd studied law and philosophy; very smart bloke. He spoke six languages, including Latin. And while he principally worked as a civil servant for the Habsburg court there in uh, in Vienna, he enjoyed working on various machines and, and inventions throughout his time throughout his lifetime. He worked on all sorts of things: steam engines, steam turbines, water pumps a typewriter that was designed to be used by the blind, uh, even a primitive speaking machine. But the project that absorbed him in 1770 was the construction of this new chess playing machine that later became known as the Turk in order to impress the imperial court. Now, to begin with, it was known as the automaton chess player, but you'll understand why it got its nickname, uh, the Turk, as I describe it to you. It took the form of a cabinet. It was just over a metre wide, Uh, it was about 60 uh, centimetres deep and 75 centimetres tall. Now, on on top of the cabinet, there was a chessboard, obviously, uh, and on the front of the cabinet, there were two cupboard doors and then a wide drawer right along the bottom of it. And there was a chess set that would be stored in the drawer and the cupboards could be opened to reveal all all sorts of complicated clockwork, gears and cogs and, you know, very, very complex and intricate machinery there. And the cabinet also had rear cupboard doors built into it, which could be opened along with the front ones, so people could see all the way through the machine from front to back, through the gaps in the clockwork, to show that nothing was being hidden inside. And in fact, Kemplin would actually use a candle to shine light inside the machine while opening the various doors to illuminate uh, the inside of it to the audience to show that you know to, to to show that there was no trickery going on, and it was just it was there was just a very clever machine inside. But the most striking thing about the machine wasn't actually the cabinet itself. It was rather the life-size mannequin of a human head and torso that was affixed to the rear of the cabinet. Kind of like, you know, when you go to the fun field, there's the sort of the, the sorcerer types that are stuck in the in the glass cabinets, like a vending machine where there's a mechanical sorcerer that reads your fortune. That like Basically like one of them, right? Stuck to the back of this cabinet. The mannequin wore Ottoman robes, had a turban, as well as a black beard and piercing grey eyes. It was dressed basically to look like an exotic sorcerer from distant lands. And uh, it had its right hand sort of resting on the cabinet, while in its left it held a long smoking pipe, which would it would, it would sort of lay down on a cushion when it wasn't moving. It would use its uh, its left hand to uh, to move the pieces around the board. Was, you know, the machine would actually pick up with its arm, with its left hand it would pick up the, the the pieces and move them around. Anyway, six months after Pelletier's performance, Kemple and the magician is he, you know he's off, he's packed his bags, he's off to the next show. Kempelen, he announces to the Habsburg court that he's got something that'll knock their socks off. Forget that French idiot. Here's the content you crave. He brings out this cabinet and its stoic guardian, and he goes through the whole process in front of the entire court. Maria Theresa, all the all the big wigs are there. He's showing off. It's complicated inner mechanisms with the candle, all the rest of it. Opening and closing the cabinet, uh, the 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 cupboard doors, all the rest of it. And then the pieces are taken out of the drawer and they're set up on top of the, on the, on the board there and Kempelen issued a challenge to the room. He was very confident with his new machine. He was confident he was going to be able to beat all comers. And so he says to the room, "Who will step forth? Who will come and face this automaton chess player?" Now the very first person to fight uh, to, to fight the Turk, not fight <laughs> I mean they weren't, you know, it wasn't a boxing match. The very first person to uh, to play against the Turk was a bloke named Count Ludwig von Kobenzl. And Kabensal, he stepped forward. He's not scared. He's not bloody frightened of some bloody robot robot Turk with a smoking pipe and a bad attitude. I'll, t- I'll, I'll play your machine, Kemplin, he says. And so Kobenzel, he takes his position at the front of the cabinet and K- uh, Kemplin wound up a large clockwork key in the side of the cabinet. And they're off to the race. You can only imagine the gasps of shock and awe as this mannequin jerkily sprang to life and lifted its arm to, uh, to make the opening move of the game, picking up a piece and moving it. Now, Kobenzel, who has to I mean, as a result of this encounter has to have one of the most one of the one of history's most interesting footnotes. Uh, he was the first person to be quickly and also quite convincingly beaten by this chess playing machine. But I'll tell you this, he wasn't the last. Astounded, courtiers lined up to challenge the Turk, and not a single one of them was equal to the task. The The, the Turk, it played quickly, it played mechanically, obviously mechanically, and, and played very aggressively. Most of the matches didn't even last half an hour before the Turk would emerge victorious. And additionally, the Turk had some other features. It would nod its head to indicate check. Uh, And even more amazingly, it recognised illegal moves instantly and would pick up and replace illegally moved pieces to their original position while shaking its head for emphasis as well. Now, throughout these matches, um, to prove there's no funny business going on. Kemplin, he walked around the room keeping a good distance from the cabinet, you know, to prove, again, he had nothing to do with controlling the inner workings of the machine as it laid waste to its foes. And he also allowed people to approach the cabinet with magnets and lodestones in case they suspected that it was all based on, you know, trickery, trickery with magnets. So he's very ready for the sceptics. I mean, just... Just take yourself out of the 21st century for a moment here and think of this, 250 years ago, before the steam train, before the internal combustion engine, before even you know Charles Babbage's very first mechanical computer, here was a machine that seemed to be able to play chess to a very high level Of its own accord, picking up and moving pieces independently and dispatching its adversaries with ease. It was an incredible piece of technology. It was absolutely mind-boggling. And that's just the beginning because it had a few more tricks up its sleeve too. It was able to solve the famous Knight's Tour puzzle. To complete a Knight's Tour, uh, you have to move a knight around a chessboard and have it touch every single square once without repeating any squares. And even very experienced chess players at the time had difficulty with the puzzle, but the Turk, it could rip off a solution to it from every single starting position on the board. Absolutely incredible. And more amazing still, a small board of letters, like a little keyboard, allowed the Turk to answer simple questions asked of it, you know, how old it was, where it came from, and of course, how it worked, although obviously it wasn't wasn't giving away that secret. To say that Kemplin had achieved his goal of, 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 out, of outclassing Plétier would be the biggest understatement since Lawrence Oates said he was, going to be out, he was going to go outside in maybe some time. He had blown that Plétier blo- joker out of the water with this one. People were amazed. They were absolutely amazed by the Turk and Maria Theresa herself loved it so much. It may have actually contributed to the sizable imperial pension that he enjoyed from 1771 onwards. Anyway, you slice it, no matter how you, know, no matter how you look at this. The Turk was a smash hit, and Kempelen had outdone himself. But have a listen to what happened next. Because word spread of the Turk and the incredible performance and this you know, this wondrous machine, the, the 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 performance it had put on at Schönbr- uh, Schönbrunn Palace there. And of course, more and more people became interested in seeing it. But here's the thing. Kempelen refused to to exhibit it again. Here is a groundbreaking technological marvel, a machine that can play chess better, beat anyone that that, that comes to to challenge it, but he doesn't want to show it off. Despite people up and down Europe clamouring to see the chess robot do its thing, Kemplin seemed to have completely lost interest in the Turk and instead he went back to working on, you know, steam engines and voice boxes and all the other stuff that he was more interested in. In fact, In the decade, in the 10 years after its first performance, the Turk only ever played a single other opponent, a Scottish fellow named Sir Robert Keith. And outside of this, Kempelen simply would not wheel it out for people to see. He would lie about it needing repairs or how it wasn't working. And after it played Keith, he actually took it apart altogether to stop people bloody badgering about him, uh, badgering him about it non-stop. However, in 1781, this came to an end uh, with the death of Empress Maria Theresa in 1780. Once she died, uh, her son Yosef succeeded her as, as Emperor Yosef II. And old mate Yosef, he wanted the Turk put back together and he wasn't going to take no for an answer. He ordered Kempelen to rebuild the machine and present it at court during a visit from a Russian Grand Duke, a bloke named Paul, who went on to become Emperor Paul I of Russia. So once again, now, Kemplin, no no choice here. Once again, the Turk was repaired, it was uh, was rebuilt, was put back together and wheeled out uh, once more in front of the imperial court and put through its paces, just as it had been a decade before. Now, once again, the inside of the machine was exposed to everyone, the pieces were set up, and then challenger after challenger was handily defeated as the Turk tore its way through the opposition. No worries. Grand Duke Paul looking on, Joseph II having a great time. And I'll tell you what, these blokes were so impressed. Grand Duke Paul in in particular, he was said to be so impressed by the Turk that he insisted that Kemplin take the machine on tour. After all, people around Europe were clamouring to see this marvel for themselves. And I don't know what it was about Paul's insistence to Kempelen, but for whatever reason, it actually got him across the line. After 10 years of resisting every call to take the Turk on tour, he finally gave in and began planning a trip across Europe with his invention. And so in 1783, after much preparation and organisation, the tour began. Kempelen and his entourage, they packed up the Turk and they set off heading to France. And there, The Turk was exhibited in Versailles and in Paris, where curious crowds obviously assembled to be mystified by this inexplicable machine. But here's the interesting thing. As interest in the machine had grown, and more and more people sought to play against it, established chess masters now wanted to test their mettle against the Turk. In Versailles, the Turk finally lost a match to a French nobleman named Charles Godefroy de la Tour de Auvergne. Wow, that was a real mouthful. And then in Paris, it lost to a lawyer named B- Monsieur Bernard, much more manageable, uh, who was a high-ranking chess player. So people were coming out of the woodwork now to challenge this machine. And of course, obviously, it, it continued to dispatch lesser foes with ease, right? But proving the machine could be beaten only increased people's interest in the Turk as these as, as these chess masters from around Europe came to challenge the Turkey. More and more chess masters, they came, they, they, they battled the Turk, and many of them did actually manage to beat it. But what people really wanted, what people really wanted to see, was the Turk facing off against Francois-André Danikan Philidor. Who was widely seen as the best chess player on earth at the time. In fact, a classic chess opening, the Philador Defense, still bears his name to this day. He was so good that he once won three simultaneous games of chess against three different opponents while blindfolded. And if you don't know anything about chess today, you'll know that that actually really isn't that impressive at all by 21st century standards. Today, it's actually very unremarkable. Plenty of chess masters can win blindfolded simultaneous games against way more than three people. It is insane. I don't know how these people do it. Um, But at the time, uh, what Philidor had done just by beating three people blindfolded, it was so unbelievable. It was such an incredible accomplishment that the witnesses to it, the people who were there to see it, were actually asked to sign affidavits, sworn sworn statements under oath, right? that it actually happened because it was thought that no one would believe it for generations to come. Anyway, as I say, people really wanted to see Philidore face off against the Turk. And finally, the match was organised to take place at the French Academy of Sciences. And it was quite a spectacle, I can tell you that. You can imagine Philidore there in his powdered wig facing off against the Beturban Turk, like two bloody UFC fighters there, bloody nose to nose, I bet, I bet they were. And the game was a grueling one. Philidor later described it as his most fatiguing game of chess ever, but he did ultimately manage to best the Turk. The very last match that the Turk played before leaving Paris was was uh, against someone else, someone very arguably more famous than Philidor, uh, none other than Benjamin Franklin himself, the famous founding father of the United States, whose greatest accomplishment, probably uh, you know, the only accomplishment he he made that, that topped beating the uh, this mechanical chess playing machine, uh, was of course the essay he wrote called "Fart Proudly." This is a real thing. Look it up it is great an impassioned defence of of the health benefits of farting by benjamin franklin of course there was all the other stuff you know all the you know a, a, a nation conceived in liberty and and the flying the kite and and the bifocals but really it's about you know mechanical chess and farting that that's really what we should be remembering uh, franklin for there Uh, Franklin, he did lose to the Turk, uh, but was absolutely fascinated by the machine, of course, as were many, many other people. No one could figure out how it worked. Such a complicated machine seemed, you know, it seemed an impossibility to everyone who saw it, and no one could adequately explain how it functioned. But, of course, function it did, as evidenced by the countless matches it played. After moving from Paris to London... Scrutiny on the Turk increased with its fame, of course. It was exhibited in London and could be viewed for five shillings. And skeptics such as Philip Thickness uh, investigated the machine hungrily, trying to, uh, to figure out how it could possibly work. Now, Thickness, uh, he was convinced that the whole thing was a hoax and that Kemplin had uh, hidden a small child in, inside the machine or even inside the mannequin itself to operate it. But the mystery continued. And, uh, and after a sp- spending a year in London, Kemplin took his show on the road once again, his pockets jingling with all the money that he'd made for people coming you know, to see or to play against the Turk. And he travelled throughout uh, you know, other parts of Europe, visiting other cities such as Amsterdam, Leipzig, Dresden, many others, uh, all the while pursued by people who sought to uncover the Turk's secret. There's also stories of, um, of, of Frederick the Great having the Turk exhibited at the, at, at, in his famous Sanssouci Palace, which is south of Berlin. The story goes that he actually paid Kemplin a lot of money for him to give up the sea, and kept it uh, kept it for the rest of his life or kept it himself but uh, unfortunately this story is almost definitely false it's, it's almost it's almost certainly apocryphal there's not much evidence to suggest that Frederick the Great ever saw the Turk I- at all in the first place much uh, much less learned its secret oh, you're too busy buddy winning wars and growing potatoes mate anyway Kemplin Kemplin really didn't seem to be too interested in exploiting the fame offered by the Turk, because after this lucrative and successful tour around Europe that, as I say, really did lie in his pockets, he went back to Austria, packed his machine away to gather dust, and went back to to a life, the life of the civil servant. It stayed in storage in Schönbrunn Palace for, if you believe it, 20 years, and slowly but surely people, they lost interest in discovering its secrets as it faded from the public consciousness – Kemplin really seems to have just, you know, been much more concerned with his other inventions. The the life of the travelling entertainer wasn't for him, you know, he'd he'd made the Turk that laid the golden egg, but obviously just didn't really have much of a taste for omelettes, more's the pity. And so the Turk, as I say, it faded from public memory, and all the people who'd been uh, so desperate to learn the truth about this amazing machine, they were left unsatisfied. And as we move into the 19th century, as Kemplin grew old, he finally attempted to actually sell the Turk, although actually unsuccessfully. He wasn't able to ever sell it. A few people were interested, but Kempelen's price of 20,000 francs was a little too high, and so he never found a buyer. And Wolfgang von Kempelen, he died at the age of 70 on the 26th of March 1804, after a lifetime in in loyal civil service of the Austrian Empire. And after his death, uh, as his estate was being sold off, a new character arrived on the scene to continue the story of the Turk. Johann Nepomuk Melzer was a, Bav- uh, a Bavarian musician who had a keen interest in mechanics, machines, and odd devices. And he ap- uh, he approached Kempel and Son after the death of the father uh, with an interest in buying the Turk. And it was in fact the second time that Melzer had uh, had attempted to purchase it. He was one of the buyers who had uh, who had thought that twenty thousand francs was too high. But here, after the death of Kemplin uh, the Senior, he managed to buy it uh, from the Sun for half that amount. He bought it for 10,000 francs, not too bad. Uh, and once he'd taken possession of it, he got busy with bringing it back online. And obviously, the Turk needed significant maintenance and repairs after two decades of inactivity. But it wasn't just that. Meltzel also now had to actually, you know, figure out how the damn thing worked as well, um, you know, which, to his credit, he managed to do. He, he, You know, that he took apart the machine, figured out all its inner, its inner workings, you know, it, it, it did uncover its mystery. But after having done this, he was so fiercely determined to guard the secret, just as Kemplin had, that he took it a step further. He actually added extra bits and pieces, features and add-ons to make the Turk even more complicated than it was before, so it would be even harder to figure out how it worked. And in 1809, the Turk was once again ready to be exhibited publicly, and so it was brought out in Schönbrunn Palace once more to be put through its paces, and this time, for one of the most significant and influential historical figures of the millennium. Napoleon Bonaparte himself, the Emperor of France, was visiting, and this was perhaps the the single most famous and well-documented encounter anyone had had with the Turk. Napoleon is, of course, a towering figure in human history, and and this is a point at which you know his his, his career was was more or less at its apex. So him arriving in Schönbrunn Palace and, and playing against this chess machine was uh, was a huge, huge story. Uh, although. You know there are, as you might expect, wildly different accounts from all the you know embellishment and exaggeration over the years. Anyway, the story goes that Napoleon he came to Schönbrunn Palace to face off against the Turk, and of course the event, the event was a huge spectacle. The court it was full of all sorts of people: officers, diplomats, courtiers, and you know some very famous chess players as well, including a bloke named Johann Baptist Algeier who wrote the very first chess handbook in German. The Turk. It was set up behind a roped-off area, while a normal table with a second chess set had been laid out for Napoleon to use. The Turk actually saluted Napoleon as he entered and sat down. Uh, Napoleon, that is, not not the Turk. He didn't salute himself. That would have been a little uh, a little self-indulgent there. Uh, and then the game began. But Napoleon here, he wasn't he wasn't about to play by the rules, right? Now, ordinarily, the Turk would have gone first, but Napoleon took the first move instead, just to see what the chess robot would do, see how it would respond. But the Turk took it in stride and the game began. Mürtzel, you know, much like Kemplin before, he moved around the room, relaying uh, the moves that both players uh, were making uh, between the two boards, and again, making it very clear that he had nothing to do with, you know, secretly operating the Turk or or anything uh, like that. The machine was, uh, was operating under its own steam. Anyway, as I say, Napoleon, he wasn't playing by the rules. He deliberately, very early on the game, he deliberately made an illegal move to test the Turk. Now, of course, the Turk shook its head, reset the illegal move, But Napoleon tried again with a different illegal move, and again, the Turk corrected it. And after a third illegal move from Napoleon, the Turk then swept its arm across the board, sending the pieces flying and ending the game on the spot. Now, apparently, Napoleon found this very funny indeed. He was uproarious laughter there. But after all the pieces had been reset, he got a little more serious. He sat down, decided to start a new game and then played, you know, properly by the book to, 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 to test his mettle against, uh, against the Turk. Now, for all his genius on the battlefield, Napoleon couldn't emulate this success on the chessboard and lost to the Turk in 19 moves. Now, what happened next remains a topic for debate. By some reports, Napoleon took the loss very well, but by others, he was unhappy and demanded a rematch. And whether this rematch actually took place or not is unclear. But the story goes that, you know, the, the one the people who claim the rematch did, uh, did take place, they tell the story as saying that Napoleon then placed a shawl over the mannequin before the second, uh, second game began to try to confound it, which proved to be obviously completely ineffective. The machine was able to operate even, even with a shawl over the top of it. In any case, as you might guess, popular interest in the Turk was uh, was very much renewed after its uh, highly publicised encounter with Napoleon, and Meltzel was very ready indeed to take advantage of this. In 1811, he took the, tur- uh, the Turk on the road once again. He took it to Milan, where it was exhibited for the Viceroy of Italy, a bloke named Eugene de Bohanay. Uh, Who was so taken by the machine that he offered to buy it off of Meltzel? And uh, as I said, you know, Meltzel, he was ready to take advantage of this cash cow. And so he sold it to uh, De Beauharnais for 30,000 francs, tripling what he'd spent on it in the first place. Now, it's unclear what Bohonay did with the Turk. There aren't any famous stories to have emerged from the period which he owned it, but here's the thing, he didn't own it for very long at all. Four years after Meltzel uh, sold it to Bohonay, he actually returned to the Viceroy and sought to buy it back. Now, there there are conflicting reports as to how much he paid to repurchase the Turk, but repurchase it, he did, and in 1815, he regained ownership of the machine. And uh, he took it on tour. Once again, he took it on tour, Meltzel uh, back on the road, uh, visiting Paris and London to show it off, just as Kemplin had done years beforehand. All the while, as I say, adding features and improvements to this machine to uh, not only make it more complicated, hard to understand what it was doing, but also add extra features. The most impressive new feature was a voice box, uh, not unlike the ones that Kemplin had worked on uh, years ago, incidentally. And this voice box allowed the Turk to say, eshek, uh, when putting uh, its opponents in check. That's the, the what, what you say in French when uh, when you're putting your, your opponent in check. you say eshek, right? So, he also found new ways uh, to to spark the public's interest in playing against the Turk by doing things uh, like giving it a pawn handicap, it would uh, lose a, one of its, uh, its bishop pawns there, uh, uh, to offset its ridiculous win rate. Uh, and even with a pawn handicap, the Turk's 1819 tour of Britain saw it only lose three games in total. So this machine really was a yeah, a machine. It, it was it was incredibly good, incredible, unbelievably good at chess, uh, and it continued to mystify and amaze people. What possible explanation could there be for this machine that effortlessly crushed people at one of the most deepest and one of the most skill intensive games ever created? And of course, the Turk also, apart from you know capturing the public imagination, it also made Meltzel a lot of money. He was very wise to have purchased it back from Berhane, uh, and as we move into the 1820s, he decided to take the Turk farther afield across the Atlantic to see if he could make some more cash in the United States of America. Meltel travelled to the US, and in 1826, he opened a show in New York City, where the Turk was once again put on display. Meltel was so overwhelmed by the response, the show became so popular that he had to bring an old associate, a bloke named, uh, named William Schlumberger, to come and work as his assistant. And when Schlumberger arrived, Meltzel took the show to Boston and then to Philadelphia and to Baltimore. And in each city, people would line up to play against the Turk and most walked away in defeat. A few people did manage to beat the Turk, however, famously including Charles Carroll, who was the longest living signer of the American Declaration of Independence. But for the most part, it, it uh, confounded and bamboozled its opponents and dispatched them with ease and again attracted a lot of attention as people tried to figure out how the, how, the, how the damn thing worked because this secret was so well kept and no one could figure out how this, how this machine could possibly operate. Uh, given the enormous enormous success of the tour of the, this, this brief tour of the East Coast, Meltzer spent the next few years taking the Turk around other parts of the United States. As we move into the 1830s, Meltzer was still touring going as far abroad as, as Canada and all the way out to the Mississippi. And in 1836, Meltzel exhibited the Turk in Richmond, in Virginia, where it was observed by none other than Edgar Allan Poe. Poe actually wrote an essay on the Turk, again, attempting to explain how it worked. He claimed that uh, uh, you know a proper chess-playing machine would play perfectly and never make a mistake, and the fact that the Turk occasionally would make a blunder or an error here or there was very suspicious. However, he didn't get much right in the essay, which goes to show that the mystery of the Turk was uh, you know still just as impenetrable as ever. In eighteen thirty eight, uh, you know after after years of having uh, taken the uh, taken the Turk around North America, Meltzel decided to take the Turk to Havana in Cuba and exhibit it there. But, unfortunately, tragically, on this trip, disaster struck because Schlumberger, Meltzel's assistant, contracted yellow fever and died. Now Meltzel, he was devastated by this. He was devastated by this, and the show did not go on. Instead, He packed up the Turk on a ship without exhibiting it again and attempted to return to the United States. And I say attempted because it only got worse from there. Tragically, Meltzel never made it back to shore. He too met his end, dying on the return voyage. And that was the end of Meltzel, but not quite yet the end of the Turk, which was left with the captain of the ship. The captain, once uh, once arriving back in the United States, turned over Meltzel's possessions, including the Turk, to one of Meltzel's friends, a bloke named John Ohl. Now, Ohl tried to auction off the Turk, but inexplicably no one seemed particularly interested in it, and so Ohl bought it for himself for $400. He later sold it on to a bloke named John Kearsley Mitchell, who also happened to be Edgar Allan Poe's doctor. Perhaps it was, you know, he, he talking with Poe, or maybe even went, went with Poe to see the uh, to see the machine in action, but whatever it was, Mitchell was very interested in the machine and very glad for the, uh, for the chance to buy it and he repaired it he restored it in an attempt to get the you know it's it's show back on the road again but uh, it never quite came together for Mitchell he never actually uh, managed to uh, to exhibit it successfully people just didn't seem as interested as the, as they uh, as they once had been and uh, and as a result it began to fade into obscurity ultimately Mitchell donated the Turk to a museum in Baltimore run by a fellow named Charles Wilson Peel uh, and Peel would occasionally put on performances with the Turk in his museum, but as time passed, it became less and less of an attraction and instead just started collecting dust in a corner of the museum. And then, tragically, on the 5th of July in 1854, the Turk finally met its end when a fire. Ripped through the museum and destroyed it. after after over seventy years of entertaining and mystifying crowds around the world, the Turk finally met its maker. Well, no, sorry, didn't obviously didn't meet its maker, but and, <laughs> and wasn't there. Kempland wasn't the one who you know burnt down the museum to d- destroy his creation. No, but you understand what I'm saying. That was the end of the Turk. And Mitchell, who who must have been there attempting to to fight the blaze, he later wrote that he had heard. Through the struggling flames, the last words of our departed friend, the sternly whispered, oft-repeated syllables, Eshek, Ishek. And that, my friends, is the end of the story of the Turk, the incredible chess-playing automaton whose mystery baffled and bamboozled thousands across the world. Nah, mate, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that to you. Don't worry. No, I absolutely, mate, I absolutely hate watching magic shows because at the end, all I want to know is how they did it. I hate the smug, self-satisfied look of the musician, of, of the magician as they pull one over you. And as much as obviously I enjoy being smug and self-satisfied, I, I'm not, I'm not gonna do it to you here, revered listener. I'm not gonna do it to you here. So here, at long last, this is what you've been waiting for the entire episode. Here is the fiercely guarded secret of the mysterious chess playing machine, the Turk it was a hoax. The whole thing, yep, the whole thing was a huge fake from beginning to end. It wasn't an automaton. It wasn't a machine. It wasn't a robot at all. When I first described the cabinet, right, you'll remember how I said that it had cupboard doors that could open to reveal the inside and prove that, you know, there was no one inside the cabinet operating it. These doors and the complicated clockwork inside were actually designed to do the complete opposite. They were there to hide the fact that someone was inside it. Even the drawer that held the chess set had a secret. It only extended about a third of the way back into the cabinet, creating a little recess behind it uh, in which the secret to the operator would sit, right? There was a seat that slid along a rail inside the cabinet that would would move and reconfigure the clockwork pieces and machinery there to obscure the person within it. As the cupboards were open, right, the operator would 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 slide around as as you know Kemplin or Meltzel or whoever else opened the doors, um, and, and the operator would hide behind the clockwork as it moved as various bits were exposed, and uh, and 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 as a result, no one would would actually see that there was a secret operator hidden inside the machine. Um, additionally. You know I talked about the candle, the candle that was used to illuminate the interior of the cabinet? That was then left inside the cabinet once the doors were closed next to a small ventilation uh, ventilation shaft, a little, little hole that came out through the top of the turban, so the operator could see what they were doing once the the doors were closed and and uh, and the games began. And, and and what was the operator doing, I hear you ask? Well, once the cupboard doors were closed, the operator would take their position underneath the chessboard on top of the cabinet next to a uh, another identically sized pegboard uh, chess set that was set inside the cabinet directly under the one on top. And the operator then used a mechanical arm inside the cabinet that was linked to the left arm of the Turk. Moving one arm would move the other in exactly the same way to manipulate the pieces on the internal pegboard uh, chess set inside the, the cabinet, which of course moved the pieces on the board above using the mechanical fingers of the external arm. All of that complicated clockwork that was you know obviously built to to look as intricate as uh, and complex as possible, right it, it didn't have anything to do with the operation of the actual chess machine at all. Uh, in reality it, it it served two very important other functions, the first one of course being uh, obstructing the view of, of people looking into it so so the operator could hide behind it. But the second thing that it did, very importantly was make a lot of noise when necessary the operator would activate the clockwork you know uh, spin it spin the dials and the cogs and the levers and the, and the and the and the gears and everything when making moves to you know add to the mechanical illusion make make the make it sound like the clockwork was in fact the thing moving the arm but it could also be used to disguise other sounds if needed if you know if the operator needed to shift or cough or or, or move about or whatever else like that the 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 loud whirring and grinding of the gears there was was important in keeping the illusion uh, whole as for the actual gameplay itself, right? The external chessboard was very thin, the one on top of the cabinet was very thin indeed, and the pieces on top of it were magnetized. So the operator could actually see the opponent's moves by watching the magnets stuck to the bottom of the chessboard move about. There were little bits of string attached to the magnets beneath inside the cabinet that identified the pieces as they moved around. Now, I don't know how Kemplin managed to avoid external magnets. You remember he, I said he invited people to come up with lodestones to deflect any magnetism, but um Somehow, uh, Kemplin managed to avoid, uh, you know, as I say, external magnets influencing the pieces. Uh, he apparently had that one figured out. Don't know how he did it, but apparently he did it. Um, and the operator could also communicate with Kemplin or Meltzel or whoever else the the the, the presenter outside with a few numbered dials that were, were set into the side of the machine, set in the side of the cabinet. There, uh, you know, you could turn the dial to certain numbers, which would then allow you know them to it would display basically pre-planned coded messages. And of course, the person outside the cabinet could communicate with the operator inside just by speaking loudly enough to them to hear, using you know misdirection, uh, clever clever indirect phrases, I guess. That wouldn't alert the audience that they were talking to, to, to the person inside there like that by maybe, you know, commentating on you know what what was going on outside, alerting them to any uh, any developments that they wouldn't be able to see there. But the best part, here's the best part of the whole thing. Who were the operators? I've already told you some of their names. Johann Baptist Algeyer, that chess master who was who was there when Napoleon played the Turk, he was the one who actually beat him. He was the one who got into the inside the cabinet and beat Napoleon. You know, by by operating the the Turk from inside the machine. William Schlumberger, Meltzel's assistant, was actually a chess master, one of the best players in Europe, who Meltzel brought over to the United States specifically for him to operate the Turk. No wonder he had to stop the show in Cuba when Schlumberger died. He had no one to work the machine. People had obviously suspected that there were some funny buggers going on with the Turk, and a lot of a lot of sceptics had said, "No, it's not possible. A machine like this, you know, it, it's it's inconceivable." And and you know, obviously, today in the twenty first century, with all the wildly advanced uh, you know chess AIs and engines that we have today, it doesn't seem you know it's not all that impressive. But at the time. It mystified people. It stupefied crowds, and no one could adequately explain how it happened. The fact that it was a hoax that pulled the wool over the eyes of thousands across decades is such an amazing achievement. And you know, I hope it's not too much of a letdown to learn that that, that the Turk ultimately was a hoax, and that you know, Kempelen wasn't an engineering genius who who managed to manufacture this uh, this this chess-playing algorithm, this, this machine that was able to operate 250 years ahead of its time. But I tell you what, bloody good on him and Meltzel and all the rest of the people who managed to keep this hoax going for decades and decades. And how do we know all this, I hear you ask? How do we know uh, the the secrets? How was the mystery of the Turk finally uncovered? People had attempted to reconstruct the machine and had made all sorts of guesses, some accurate, some absolutely wild, for years and years and years, but it had never been answered definitively. We didn't actually uncover the mystery of the Turk until the 1850s, when Silas Mitchell, the son of John Mitchell, post-doctor who donated the uh, the, the Turk to the museum, uh, Silas Mitchell wrote a series of articles finally exposing the secret. As the Turk had been destroyed by the fire, the younger Mitchell didn't see the point in keeping it secret anymore. And I'll tell you what, I'm bloody glad he did. Because otherwise, we'd all be suffering the smug self-satisfaction of Kempelen to this very day. But that's it. That is actually it. That is all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Mechanical Turk. I mean, it was a very interesting thing to learn about, very interesting to read about, although it did lead me down a lot of deep, dark, chess-related Wikipedia rabbit holes. I now know what... The Sicilian defense is and what hanging pawns are and other stuff that I I never thought I'd I'd, I'd need to know. Anyway, thank you uh, goes to once again to Dennis Stranjak, a good friend of mine who suggested this as a topic. Uh, It was very interesting to read about. And a special thank you also goes to Dennis for something else this week, because he was generous enough to secure a new domain name for the podcast. You can now visit not only halfarsehistory.net, but you can also visit com to get to uh, to get to the website for this podcast. Thank you so much to Dennis for sorting that out for me. Uh, it was very very generous of him to uh, you know to donate his time and resources in order to secure that com domain for me. So if you know if you don't if you if you do if it's too much hassle for you to remember the .net now, halfasthistory.com, All thanks to Dennis Strandjacket. And it's there of course that you can find old episodes, links to subscribe, a contact form as well if you want to get in touch with the show. And uh, links to both the shop, uh, halfousehistory.bigcartel.com and the Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash If you want to support the show with real life dollary dues, certainly is appreciated. And thank you so much to all the exalted patrons who uh, who support the show week in and week out. And uh, yeah, if you want to go and buy yourself some, some Half House swag, please do so. And I'll send it off to you as soon as I get the order. Anyway, that is that. Once again, thank you to everyone who's listening to the show. Please share the show with your friends, uh, with your enemies, with people who you feel largely indifferent about. They all, all those numbers all look good. Those all numbers those numbers look look good on the back end. Doesn't matter doesn't matter what your opinion is of the person you recommended it to. But I do appreciate everyone who's spreading the good word of Half Ass History. And of course, I'm looking forward to having your company next week when we get stuck into something else. If you've got a topic suggestion, please let me know because I'd love to hear it. Anyway, that is that for this week. We're going to leave you as usual with a question posed on Reddit, a uh, a chess related question, of course. Uh, seem seem to be appropriate. Redditor Corner of the Oval asks. Do Australians argue a lot when playing chess because they're always saying mate?